folks, welcome back. This is Andy with the Poor Proles Almanac. Gonna say hi. Oh, you want me to say hi? Uh, hi, guys. It's Elliot. You can find us on Spotify, iTunes, and wherever you get your podcasts. And you can find us on Patreon if you'd like to help us cover the cost of hosting the podcast. We don't explicitly offer any of our traditional content focused on the specific goals of this podcast to our Patreons in terms of limited access or anything like that right now. Knowledge is for everyone, but we have started up a Patreon mini-series called The Prologues, during which we do some critiques on various subject matters and talk about things not only from an intersectional lens, but also within the context of this podcast, societal collapse and reconstruction. We also like to do some really interesting history stuff. Most recently, we talked about anti-vaxxers and the history of where anti-vaxxers came from. If you're interested, here's a quick clip from our last episode and what we're doing on the Patreon-only section. So they were able to get to successfully pretty much get rid of uh, smallpox for the most part at this point, despite the fact that, again, there's a massive amount of people that didn't believe in, that the vaccines were safe or good or any of these things. The problem was that at some point in the late 1800s, the British... Uh, government essentially said there's too many of them we need to at least let them air their grievances to us in a formal setting and consider what they have to say so they decided to listen to them the reason why the program had been so successful at this point was that there were threats of fines and imprisonment for parents if they didn't let their kids get vaccinated so if you're interested and you are willing to donate two dollars it is up on our patreon We've also released one episode that was asked for by popular demand regarding guns for new gun owners, and that's up for public consumption, so that's a good place to check it out and see if you'd like to hear more. On top of this content, we've got stickers available, and we'll be including some footage from my farm putting the theory we're talking about into practice, so if you want to see what's going on over there, check out the Patreon. While we do enjoy making this content, there's about 20 hours worth of work that goes into each episode, so any support we can get to offset our actual costs, we fully and wholeheartedly appreciate, so go ahead and check us out on Patreon. Lastly, we're on Instagram and Facebook if you want to follow us over there. We don't just post updates about the show, but we also incorporate leftist and ecological history, as well as some foraging, hunting, and botanical knowledge that we find interesting. And, of course, we've got... Memes coming in hot. Memes. Coming in hot. Elliot loves the memes. I don't know what a meme is. That's how I feel like Bernie Sanders would call it. May May. And then make money off of it. I remember May May. May May? Yeah. Don't know what you're talking about. Don't know what a May May is. So, <laughs> if this is your first episode, we don't normally talk about May Mays, but we highly, highly recommend going back to the first episode of the podcast and catching up since each episode springboards from the previous content. Additionally, this is going to be a little bit different. We're going into a new mini series. So, we're going to be talking about this idea of what it means to farm the land in a holistic way, uh, what many people would call permaculture. At this point, I feel as though we've covered a bunch of specific detail-oriented information based both on scientific evidence that's backed by applied experience across the spectrum of agricultural methods, and we've challenged a lot of, let's call it, stuff that's floating around on the internet. I've been trying to figure out the best way to articulate a conversation about permaculture, because on the surface, it seems pretty straightforward. 
The general concept behind permaculture is based on the name itself, permanent agriculture. That is agriculture based on long-term systems with minimal human input outside of the original efforts. In its vagueness, we find complexity for a multitude of reasons. Over the past year, questions have arisen regarding the role of non-POC voices as the primary agents and advocates for these systems, and with good reason. Despite my own mixed immigrant heritage, it's hard to discern my disposition from any other white guy walking around on the street, so my role in having this conversation might seem counterintuitive. Fortunately, I've got Elliot. Hey, you got me, buddy. (laughs) Blow your roll. However, because of the fact that I do spend so much time discussing both the pros and cons of many of the practices that fall under the realm of permaculture as it exists today, I do feel responsibility to contextualize permaculture, where it came from, how it's evolved, where it is today, and the primary actors and agents, and why it's such a complicated juggernaut of both anti-capitalist agriculture as well as right-wing frontierist farming. With that... I want to dive into the contemporary history of permaculture, contextualize it within human history, and circle back to our current moment and how we are kind of at a breaking point in permaculture, where we are coming to terms with some complex, deep-rooted issues. So, let's dig in. For folks that are familiar with permaculture, you've probably heard of the father of permaculture, as he's called, Bill Mollison, who developed what became, I guess, trademarked as permaculture with David Holmgren. In 1974, Mollison began his collaboration with Holmgren, and in 1978, they published their first book, Permaculture One, which introduced this design system to the general public. Many people find permaculture usually through a Google search when they feel like organic farming isn't enough, and they want to do something more. For me personally, it was about finding a system that required less inputs, There's a term that's kind of been created that covers this. It's called like being the lazy farmer. And it's about creating systems that allow you to be lazy. And that's kind of what I was always looking for. I hated the idea of buying inputs and constantly having to do things like weeding. And permaculture kind of said, hey, we can offer that. So that was my own personal uh, exposure to permaculture was around in college where I heard this. And I was like, oh, that makes a lot of sense. I heard it from people in college too, but they were trying to grow organic vegetables, but they were trying to do it in a way that didn't make it seem like they were planting annuals every year or like had a garden or a vegetable box. They wanted to do it in a way where it looked like it was part of the natural landscape and more uh, native to the area because it just made more sense that way. Yeah. So trying to align the, the goals of the plant with your own goals, I think, is kind of what we envision when we talk about permaculture. And one of the challenges that we have today, despite having the internet and having so much access to information, there's very much an information overload. And anything that's new that kind of has a vacuum of where people can kind of fill in those voices of what that movement or subject area is, allows for a lot of folks to get involved that are trying to be that voice, even if they're not really qualified to be that voice. And that's been a a perennial problem for permaculture as a whole. So part of what Mollison did uh, after he wrote his book was founded the Permaculture Institute in Tasmania and created an education system to train other people under this umbrella of permaculture. This education system of essentially uh, train the trainer. So if you guys like 
watch TV at six or five in the morning and it's like the crap that's just like constant commercials and sales. There's always like the beach body products and it's like P90X, P90X1, P90X2, Insanity, Insan- whatever, like there's a million of them. And all of them are designed around this idea where you can do it and then if you become obsessed with it, you can go and teach it. And the, the teaching or the application process to become a teacher is pretty easy. And it's kind of designed like a, yeah, a pyramid I don't, scheme. I, I don't think I could do it. Yeah. Uh, like I'm just saying. <laughs> are you talking about working out or are you talking yeah, about? Yeah, yeah, no, yeah, no. that. Yeah, no. Yeah, no, I'm a fat piece. <laughs> the way they design this, uh, what's called a permaculture design course, a PDC, is that as long as you learn from someone else that is taught a perm or taken permaculture design courses, they're qualified to teach a permaculture design course is the very short and simple of it. The goal of this kind of structure was to allow the information to get processed and delivered to people that were curious and interested quickly, which I think is fair. However, as people that have taken PDCs before can attest, it's really hit or miss about what you get in terms of quality. And this this idea of making the information accessible allowed for evolution of programming as new data came out, especially because where Bill Mollison is originally from is a very tropical, arid climate. It's Australia. Uh, so they the conditions and the things that he was farming and farming around and the conditions he was concerned about don't apply so much to, say, where I live in New England. Allowing the system to evolve with where the PDCs were being taught allowed the information to evolve to meet those demands. However, one of the challenges is that it's very easy to take a PDC and to be qualified and to teach PDCs on things you don't actually know what you're talking about. And that's not to say that's the case in all of them, of course. Yeah, I don't think I could do it. Yeah, and like (laughs) honestly, despite making this podcast and having taken PDCs, I'm not sure if I would feel comfortable teaching a PDC. Not because I, I, I know what I'm doing and I've been doing it a long time and um, I would say I'm a, a fairly articulate person that can talk about various parts of agriculture. Despite that, I don't think I'm a qualified person for telling other people how to do things with a matter of factness. And what concerns me is a lot of times, much like our politicians, the people that are least qualified are the ones that think they're the most qualified. Uh, and I'm going to kind of pivot quickly. If any of you guys watch YouTube videos, like you're like, oh, what is this? What is that? I, I watch a lot of YouTube because it's convenient and it's short and I don't have a very long attention span. He's addicted. He's got a problem and we were going to plan an intervention, but it's kind of hard to plan an intervention on YouTube. I guess um, we can do it right now. He's always connected. Yeah. Andy, I've been meaning to tell you you have a YouTube problem. Yeah. Yeah. You have a, you have a YouTube problem. It's, it's a WeTube first it's, off. WeTube. You, you do it on the Wii? No, it's us. It's all of us. Because we're anarchists. Oh, you We're are. together. There's, so there's no you. It's you. Like Auranus? Pluralized. Come on. Pluralized. Uranus, Auranus? Come on. YouTube. Uh, WeTube, yes. We- Not weed tube, Elliot. Uh, that sounds so much better. That's probably a thing, actually. I would not be surprised. What was I saying? 
Yeah. So if you go on YouTube and you type, like I mentioned this really quickly in the Swales episode, you can Google or go on YouTube and like type in Swale Systems Permaculture and there's like a million videos and it's literally a bunch of people that it's their first time doing it and they don't know really what they're doing. And they're like, hey, it rained and it filled up with water. I did it right. And it's a little bit more complicated than that. And yeah. And there's no animals involved as well. So yeah. just in case you thought there was an animal in there, it's Swales. Not whales. Not whales? Yeah. What if it's a singer known as Whale? What What do you mean? There's a dude a, that's named Whale that's a singer. Are you sure? Yeah. Are you sure it's not Wale? He's like a hip-hop artist. He's pretty good. Is, I don't, listen, I've seen the name, so it's probably Wale. I'm pretty sure it's Wale. I'm white, all right? Yeah. <laughs> um, oh, I hope this goes viral. Yeah. Please. He doesn't know who Wale is. So, I, I know the name. Pronounced not wrong. pronounced correctly but i know it's terrible yeah i am terrible so anyways what i was <laughs> what i was saying is that there's uh very little qualifications other than taking this pdc as someone that's taken pdcs it's very mixed in terms of what you get in terms of knowledge and a lot of the things that we've disproven in this the agricultural part of this podcast are things that are commonly talked about in permaculture circles, things like companion planting and planting certain plants to keep bugs away and, and stuff that doesn't really work. There's no backed evidence for it. And it, it was never a part of original permaculture theory. It's the new layers that have been built on as people have tried to add to the canon of permaculture. And we'll talk about why that's a problem in the first place yeah but i that's what i know about permaculture is uh the no pest thing like companion planting specifically for controlling pests yeah and uh, in a garden and, and like that sounds great like you know it sounds like a great idea like if you can do it but there's no science backing up that it actually works like you still have pests to deal with yeah there's very little evidence of plants that that actually works for there are some uh, marigolds and tomatoes are like one of the very, very few examples that do exist. But that's like, by most evidence, just having a diversity of plants is f from different families is far more valuable than any specific plant. That's kind of the stuff that to me kind of drives me nuts is that uh, there's this very core knowledge that Bill Mollison built. And I say he built it in the sense that he literally wrote the book about it, not that he discovered it or anything like that. And we're going to talk about that. But the problem in modern permaculture really stems to this idea of how the knowledge has evolved and how it has um, taken on a very pseudoscience role in the things that it kind of has gone into in terms of peripheries, which is really dangerous and devalues the the knowledge that is valuable within permaculture. And the original message that permaculture was trying to get across yeah, in the, um, in the first place. Yeah, so to get back to Bill Mollison... Um, there's usually like about four names that people are familiar with when it comes to permaculture. Bill Mollison being the obvious one, David Holmgren being the second one, Toby Hemingway being the third one, and Jeff Lawton probably being the fourth one. There's a few others that people are probably familiar with, Sepp Holzer and so on, but um, those are probably like the big five, I would say. So the thing you might notice first is that they're all guys. The second being that they're all white guys, probably, and yeah, they I, are. I was literally thinking that sounds like a basketball team from like the 1950s, like Celtics <laughs> or some shit. Right. And that that's kind of a problem when you say this is knowledge I learned from watching, studying indigenous culture, right? So permaculture, obviously, is a very big thing. So people are making a lot of money someplace. 
and we're going to talk about that a little bit in a, in a bit, but I kind of want that kind of in the back of your head as we continue the conversation. So to bring the reason why I brought this up is Bill Mollison, when he was starting to build this up, one of his primary students that ended up writing a few books and actually I think has some of the better books on permaculture, Toby Hemingway. The original idea for permaculture came to him in 1959 when he was studying in the Tasmanian rainforest because he was amazed by the uh, abundance and interconnectedness of the ecosystem within the rainforest. And it was there that he started thinking about whether or not they were designed or had a, a hand involved from humanity, whether or not they were existing outside of humanity or with humanity's input to direct those resources in a way that are beneficial for us. And um, this should all probably sound pretty familiar to a lot of what we've talked about at this point. So like this, at this point is all pretty, pretty up and up, all good. At this point, he realized that industrial agricultural methods were the opposite of what he saw. And he realized that it was time to try to put together what became permaculture essentially to what he said uh, reassemble yeah reassemble not put together reassemble sure reassemble that's that's more accurate so they they developed a framework for what would be considered sustainable agriculture built on a multi-crop system of perennial trees shrubs and herbs as well as fungi and root systems they called it permaculture and like i said they started figuring out ways to sell it essentially including trademarking the term pretty quickly and two, this, it's two words put together for yeah. those who don't know permanent agriculture so he he wrote the book started these pdcs and in the early 80s people started graduating from this permaculture development uh, design course and they started trying to put permaculture systems into their communities and much like a pyramid scheme recruit people in to take their classes for them to teach that class or develop a forest or a food forest or whatever by now, or by the early 20-teens, over 300,000 graduates had finished from a PDC around the world. So there's a lot of people that are now qualified to teach or to start a permaculture food forest based on their, their knowledge that they have from their permaculture development course. Like I said, these systems had existed for a long time, and Holmgren does a good job of recognizing the fact that this is not something he created by any means. He acknowledges that it was an indigenous culture uh, that had guided a lot of his research. Uh, he also found a lot of research from various farmers, people like J. Russell Smith. We've talked about tree crops, which is one of his most uh, influential work. I'm going to say it. Silvopasture. Pretty much. He, he developed uh, various concepts of uh, silvopasture. Toihiko Kagawa, um, who talked about the concept of forest farming uh, much earlier than Holmgren was writing, particularly in regards to the indigenous farming uh, where he was located. I believe he was in Japan. Additionally, Masanobu Fukuoka in Japan pushed for natural farming. Him, J. Russell Smith, have a lot of really easy, accessible books on the internet. Go get them. They're usually free. So definitely check them out. I'm a big fan of both of them. Uh, lastly, we've talked about... Yalman's a lot in this podcast, the last couple episodes on water management and talking about designing a food forest on scales of permanence. That was all Yalman's work. So a lot of those works that had existed before kind of existed as separate ideologies of agricultural beliefs. And 
essentially Holmgren's in reality, all he did was look at a bunch of different cultures and take those ideas and put them in one place, which I guess has some merit, but by no means did anything he developed uh, was unique or original. So that's kind of the, the very quick understanding of the history of permaculture. We've talked a lot about some of the principles of permaculture in the idea that creating sustainable forests we talked in a couple episodes ago about zones and the various concepts of how permaculture is focused on catching and storing energy creating systems of self-regulation through the diversity of crops and to creatively think about uh, changes to the landscape as well as recognizing the value of the marginal space which we had talked about a little bit in the forest succession episode we talked about how the the marginal space on the forest is usually the most diverse. As a hunter, that's where you want to be because that's where most animals come through because there's more food available there than anywhere else. Uh, And he applied that in terms of agriculture, which, again, is um, a very naturalist concept. The ultimate goal really is to find ways that your land interacts with the rest of the natural world and how we can apply some of those basic principles around maximizing the resources available. How do we maximize sunlight, heat, shade, rainfall, etc. for our end goals? And as we begin to do these things, what happens that we don't expect and how can we work with it? Our goal isn't to fight nature, but to align the activities of nature with our goals. Um, right, and that was my main takeaway from what I learned about permaculture, or at least the main goal or, I guess, point or purpose of it was to take design like human design i guess and think like all right if this was nature like how would how would this be you know if i wasn't here and you know it would be this way but then it's taking the agriculture approach which that's the human element and applying it to that and say all right let's try to maximize these things but also keep it as natural as possible yeah and the important thing is to keep in mind the human element, like we, we often think of nature as existing outside of us. Right. But why these food systems exist is because of humans' involvement in those systems. Right. Which is one of the problems with permaculture from, I, I think, a, a white person's perspective is that we tend to commodify nature into this thing that we can package and utilize in that way that we exist outside of it. So, like, there's a natural nature that doesn't exist with us and that doesn't really exist humanity has been across the globe for millennia and we are a part of nature and trying to take us out is no different than taking out a wolf from its environment and saying there's no more wolves in the forest what's going to happen it's going to be an overpopulation of the things that they ate and those things are probably going to overpopulate destroy what they eat and then die off so taking humans out of it can be a really dangerous thing Like, we might not see it, like, if you go into a forest that's untouched by humanity in any meaningful way, it might still exist, but that doesn't mean that's, you know, we always talk about, like, old growth forest, or, like, you know, the idea of complex systems is that the more complex it is, the uh, more diverse it is, the healthier it is, and the more energy it stores, we're taking out that next layer, which is the human interaction in that landscape, by trying to cut ourselves out of it. And permaculture, I think, has this weird bipolar relationship with humanity involvement in nature. And it definitely treats nature more of an other that we can be involved with as opposed to us being inherently involved with nature. Yep, I get that. So hopefully that kind of covers some of the very basics of what 
permaculture is. I don't want to really go into specifics in terms of some of the methodologies. There are things I do want to talk about. One of the things I did want to talk about in particular that drives me nuts about permaculture, and I get to talk about it because it's my fucking podcast, is the the stacking method that is so quickly sold as a way to maximize space and efficiency and permaculture. And it's this idea of having uh, multiple layers within your food forest, if that's what you're trying to do, where you might have a canopy tree, an understory tree, vines, bushes, ground cover, root crops. And for anyone that actually does any farming or has tried any of these methods, the first thing you're going to realize is very quickly that system grows out of control and you have no idea what's growing where. There's not enough sunlight getting into the fruits. We talked about that in the fruit tree episode. The necessity in order to create abundant fruit on your trees is uh, sunlight access. If you've got grapevines growing up your fruit tree, which is also underneath a bigger tree, you're not going to get a lot of sunlight. If you have bushes like blueberries or something underneath it, how are those blueberries going to get any sunlight? And then if you have a ground cover like strawberries below that, how much sunlight is getting to those strawberries? How are they ever going to live? And then if you're going to put a, a root underneath that, say radishes or something like that, how much are they going to disrupt the soil when you pull them out or disrupt the roots when you pull them out, if you can pull them out? And within a couple of years, it's pretty easy to see how these systems start to become cumbersome and self-destruct, which I think is one of those things that you put in a graph in a book and it looks very easy. And then you see it in person. You're like, that is chaos. So it sounds like you need a lot of space for all of this. How much, how much space or land use are we talking about for all of these things? So the, the, there's a variety and, um, Mollison eventually kind of refines this idea with the understanding that not everyone is going to have hundreds of acres to do something like this. Right. And there's various subsections, subsects of, permaculture that are designed for uh, annual crops um, for people in subdivisions and things like that but originally again he designed this based on what he saw and he was thinking very literally as a food forest to maintain those types of systems is a lot of work if you actually want to make it work if you want to prune back your grapes and your trees and all these things to get enough sunlight in to produce meaningful harvests it can be done but the, the workload is much more significant than I think is initially suggested by the, the theory behind it. It, do, it doesn't meet the theory's expectation in terms of productivity. So that, that's just kind of you know a, a quick deep dive into one of the examples that's very commonly pointed to in permaculture as an example of why their systems are very good. And again, to anyone that has farmed for a living or works in agriculture or has done or tried permaculture, that's the first thing that's going to stand out to you is that a lot of these concepts don't really work in practice. And Mollison tried to evolve his permaculture theory, and there's a very reasonable argument that he was pretty anti-capitalist in some capacity based on some of the things that he considered. However, the permaculture movement, because of how amorphous it is because of how the trainings can be done and its very close relationship to things like self-sufficiency, which is honorable in a lot of ways to try to not damage the earth more than you have to, tend to lean very well into things like homesteaderism and ultimately kind of rugged individualism, which is super problematic and usually based in 
white supremacist or hyper-religious framework. So the problem with permaculture, or one of the problems with permaculture, is that it has become very much a placeholder for a lot of right-wing ideals. And I think that's a big piece of how the pseudoscience has gotten really tied interwoven into it, is because you have a very large majority of permaculturalists that are very hard-leaning right-wing. So is this what we were talking about when we did the Cottagecore episode, which if you haven't listened to, you should go check out? Yeah, that's on our Patreon. There is a uh, component we talked about, like there's kind of two wings to Cottagecore. That exists in permaculture too, where you've got like the Cottagecore trad wife, which is like this like, what the fuck is that show? The one with the the prairie, Little House on the Prairie. Is that a show? Like the really old one. Yeah, so that's what I'm looking for. Little Um, House on the Prairie? Yeah, so Little House on the Prairie is like kind of the framework of what a lot of permaculturalists kind of want to go back to is this idea of like living self-sufficiently, even though that didn't really exist. Like it was very much more collective communities that um, self-sustain themselves. But along with that is like this very strong cultural homogeneity that existed where everyone was white and Christian, whatever, went to church on Sundays and all these other things, which doesn't play into the world we live in today. And that has gotten very heavily tied into permaculture. Not to say that it's solely, but as somebody that's been around the permaculture movement for 15 years now, it really wasn't until probably the last five years that I've seen more diversity in what is called permaculture. It's been primarily white people talking to white people. And if you go in Facebook groups that are permaculturists, it's almost always hard right wingers that, you know, rail against the government and think and somehow that is tied into the permaculture culture, which is obviously problematic. Yeah. I don't know any of my friends that are talking about permaculture because none of them own land. That's also a component of it is that like, by definition, if you want to do things like permaculture, you need to have access to capital or land. And yeah, just pull yourself up by your bootstraps. Yeah. And if you were a fucking moron and went to college in oh six figures because you went to state school instead of community college, well, guess what? You get to be a fucking pencil pusher for the next 30 years, and maybe then you can afford to buy a little house. Maybe. Survive. Sounds about right. I mean, assuming America exists in 30 years, which, meh. It'll look the same, topographically-wise. Yeah. Um, then the land will be free, so win-win. Another thing we talked about in the fruit episode, the fruit tree episode in the understory, is uh, this concept of guilds. And it's this idea that, uh, and we were just talking about it before we started recording, about this idea that you're going to plant all these different things and somehow they're going to cancel out all of the negative things that exist in nature. And like, if you just plant the right plants together, suddenly you don't have to do anything and you have no pests and nothing. Right, no pests. The no pest plague. Yeah, and you'll see these like guilds, they'll be as simple as like three or four plants and some of them will be like 30 plants. And it's like, oh, this particular very rare herb, you know, is going to, you know, add B16 to the soil or something you've never heard of. And uh, I think part of it is part of that permaculture development course infrastructure allows for people to add to it without any real authority. And it becomes canonized into the permaculture community. And um, there's really no there's there's no check valve to make sure what's coming in as new knowledge is actually good knowledge. Sure. I won't say that anybody who takes the course or does any of this stuff 
they spread this information saying it works or do you think they compile the information or you know see or hear somewhere that this works in one instance and then they use that and say that this is a fact so it works everywhere yeah i think a part there's two pieces i think there's two main problems of why this kind of shit happens the first is there's so much opportunity to make money in permaculture everyone can be an expert and you see that a lot on youtube and i'm not going to talk about any particular names that are very big on youtube and make a living from youtube not farming they pretend to farm but they don't make any money farming they just make youtube videos about them farming and all these systems and they want to stand out so they create new content And some of that new content comes from hearsay or things they read on some forum from 10 years ago or wherever, but it's because they don't actually farm or whatever. They just want to create content. And the first time they do it, they make a video about how it's going to do these great things and they never do a follow-up because it didn't work, but it's still up on YouTube, you know, and maybe it's getting a lot of hits because it has something new in it. So they don't want to take it down. So there's that component, the, the, financially driven piece of it and the second piece of it i think that is really challenging to overcome is a cultural fetishization of like old wives tales of like how things were done back in the day they must by proxy because that's how we used to do things be something we must not we must have forgotten about it and that's why we don't do it that way anymore as opposed to there being scientific evidence that it doesn't work Uh, Harken back to our Patreon content, we did an episode on Osage orange trees. And um, one of the old wives tales of why people kept or what they did with those trees is they would keep the Osage oranges in their basement because supposedly it kept bugs away. There's been a bunch of research on it. And there's been zero evidence that it does anything. But if you were just to go by old wives tales, you'd be like, oh, here's this thing you didn't know. And you should do that. It's probably just cold as hell. Yeah, they probably were like, well, it smells like ass, so why don't we put it in our basement? The bugs will also think it smells like ass. And they just did it because they thought it worked, much like people that buy those lights that keep ants out of their house that they like plug into the wall, and they're like, oh, the light is a color the ants don't like, so they won't come in. And they're they, just they have because those? they didn't, yeah, my wife bought one. That's why I know about them. Oh my God. Um, and I was like, why? And she's like, well, it was five bucks, so I figured I'd try it. Capitalism at yeah. its best, dude. That's like, amazing. It was like an ant walking by, like when she's pointing it out, and she's like, well, there's less ants this year. And I'm like, it was walking okay. by with its back to the light, though. Yeah. Like, like it, crab walking like a fucking weirdo. Yeah. So, like, that's, and that's the problem again with YouTube is you find this thing on the internet, you can put it out there, and there's really no accountability if, if it's not true, like you can just drop shit out there. And if you're making money off it, why are you going to take it down, even if it's false? So basically, you're saying it's people like me with no land and no experience really go and learn about permaculture and they get qualified and then go and spread facts. Uh, it Yes, kind of. But there, it's a little bit more complicated than that. So we have these permaculture courses that you can take and you can become qualified or certified. And uh, what a lot of them do is go and consult before they, because usually people that are doing it don't have a career. So they don't have a house. They don't, they're not settled someplace. They're usually younger. The courses aren't expensive, but they're not cheap. And it's not something you get financial aid for. So who has three to $5,000 and can afford to, go live someplace else for a couple weeks and just pick up their bags and go someplace. And like, they don't have any responsibilities. I don't know. 
young white dudes, right? Uh, like young rich white dudes who don't have any real responsibility. Like either they graduated college and were like, I don't want to work a nine to five. I want to get back in nature, man. And, you know, they don't have any student loans because mommy and daddy paid for college. And they're like, you know what? I'm just going to go take a month and go work on this farm and take this PDC. Wait, do people really do this? Yeah, 100%. I know. Uh, I just can't. I just, I don't know. I went to a private college and that's the only reason. Like, I didn't think trust fund kids were real. And then I went to college and I was like, holy shit, you are a trust fund kid. That's a thing. There were no trust fund kids where we grew up. No. Uh, <laughs> and that's why you see a lot of the newer faces in permaculture are generally younger white dudes, like usually in their 30s or late 20s that went to college, fucked off for a few years, decided that they wanted to get back in touch with nature, and they became permaculture experts. That is true. There was a lot of sandals in the permaculture <laughs> crowd. Yes. Um, a lot of sandals. And that's the problem with permaculture is that the the people that are telling the story of these indigenous traditions are not in any way affiliated or anything other than uh, topically respectful for those indigenous practices. And again, most of them, their main goal is making money. There, there's a running joke for farmers that work around permaculture that People that want to do permaculture do permaculture, and then people that want to make money teach permaculture because that's where your money is. And that's why you see a lot of these people, they'll go take the permaculture class, which again, who's got five, 10 grand sitting around that they don't mind spending on something like that has no meaningful consequence. Like this isn't something you can use for any job. Mostly you're going to consult. So you're not going to like go get a job in permaculture after you graduate. I mean, it is a certification, so it's something, It's an right? unaccredited certification. It's just literally like they hand you a piece of paper and said, hey, you did this. There's no third-party verification that you have a certain knowledge. It's complete bullshit is really what it is. Uh, and it, it's a, an entire system that's designed for gatekeeping that only people with the capital and the resources to do it um, consult and intern and all these different things can do it for a career that doesn't pay a lot of money, but you end up getting to travel the world and things and talk about systems and food and all these things. And essentially, like, are you familiar with the term volunteerism? It's like huh. when white people go to Haiti to like build a library and they're oh, yeah, like, yeah, we're yeah. starving to death. Why are you building us a fucking library? Yeah, I do know that. Yeah. So like white people like to do that on their spring break. This is like the extended version. It's like good on college credits and college yeah. resumes and stuff like that. Yeah. Like, and this is like the career version of it where it's like you get to volunteer, you get to get paid to volunteer to like Nicaragua to tell them how to do permaculture because white people fucking wiped most of the indigenous people off the face of the earth. And now we've codified their knowledge and we're selling it back to them. I heard a story that people went to, I forgot, I forgot which country it was, but they went to build a library and they went and built the library, right? And after they left, the people had to tear down the building and put it back up again <laughs> because all of the volunteers that went down there, none of them had any idea how to do anything. Yeah, that, so, that sounds about right. Right. And after I heard that, I was like, well, I bet there's a lot of that going around because these people are volunteering. Like, what they're, are they actually doing? Yeah, they're not do? there for volunteering. They're there to make themselves feel good and fucking take some sweet Instagram stories. Wow. Sorry. So I, I don't really want to get into the actual process of permaculture. There's plenty of places to do that. 
So I wanted to talk a little bit about the problems with how it's being taught today, the pseudoscience that's base that's been building up in permaculture. Um, we've covered the fact that a lot of permaculturists subscribe to this idea of individual hyper individuality. This idea it's very colonialist of like self sufficiency of I'm going to move off grid and rely only on myself and fuck my community, um, which is part of why we did this is because we we're trying to separate people that understand the value of community in terms of prepping and imagining a future after whatever the fuck this is collapses. Um, whereas there's definitely this element of the permaculture community that is the complete diametric opposite of that. So I think it's right around here. I want to take a minute and start talking about the shortfalls of permaculture, not in terms of its successes and failures as an agricultural system, but in how it evolved to mean something more than maybe it was ever intended to, but I guess it really comes down to this idea of respecting the authority of where this knowledge came from. And I think this is a really big component of a lot of the conversations going on regarding not just permaculture, but regenerative agriculture, and essentially this back to land movement that's been going on over the last decade or so. People want to get in touch with nature and they're drawn to things like permaculture and regenerative farming because they make a lot of sense. And like they, they do make a lot of sense, I think. People are able to read and understand what the goals of those movements are in a way that, uh, I guess, validates how a lot of people feel about how our relationship with nature should exist. But much like, you know, we look at things like post-slavery and post-racial inequality, if you want to call the civil rights that. It doesn't really address the foundational problem of the permaculture movement and that the founders of the permaculture movement did so using knowledge that wasn't theirs and while giving topical credit to those people, uh, not doing anything meaningful and not just not doing anything meaningful for those specific cultures, but the complicated history of colonization and its role in erasing a lot of those indigenous knowledges. Not only has a lot of knowledge been erased because of colonization and genocide, but what has somehow survived despite capitalism and colonialism's best efforts um, has now been appropriated by, as we just discussed, generally a bunch of white dudes. Uh, and that's a problem. Before we started recording, we had the conversation that we start each episode with knowledge is for everyone, and they're taking this knowledge and repackaging it, I guess, and selling it, is what you're saying? They're Not only are they doing that, but they're erasing the people whose knowledge this was by codifying it under permaculture, which isn't tied to any indigenous roots other than like it was inspired by indigenous people and it wasn't inspired it was indigenous knowledge and now there there's this multi-million dollar industry that exists off of something that was stolen and not only was it stolen but the real problem is that indigenous people across the globe have had their entire cultures ravaged by colonists and the things that they had to hide from white people ever knowing that they had continued to know, you know, for example, um, like slaves that came over and they carried handfuls of the seeds for the foods that they ate at home. 
it's like if you know white people found those seeds today and started cooking authentic African cuisine, but called it something else and said that they had found it. Like it's that's a fucking problem that you're taking somebody's heritage and then capitalizing on it. And even if it is a good thing for the planet, that that doesn't reconcile the fact of what it really is. Much like you know we had talked about in um, I think it was the last episode with the IRA. Just because we are post-racial, that doesn't erase the fact that there's some serious fucking problems that need to be dealt with. And I think that condition still exists within permaculture, except because of that uh, division that exists within the permaculture movement, there's a big chunk that don't acknowledge it. Then you have the people making money off of it who don't want to take a side for the most part because it's not profitable to cut off half of your audience. And then you even have on the left a lot of people that refuse to, they say, much like what you're saying, that, well, we're doing something that's good for the planet and we don't mean to do anything harmful. And that makes it really hard. It's a a hard conversation without a really easy answer, which is why I wanted to do this episode, because a lot of people that follow us uh, will send us messages. And it's about usually like, I'm really interested in permaculture. Can you tell me more about permaculture? And I, I really have shied away from that word throughout the whole podcast. And this is kind of why. Okay, so in order to simplify the conversation that we're having, I think you're trying to say that permaculture is taking a lived experience away from people and, you know, shedding away anything that's not useful and taking what's useful and being like, this is the information we're going to keep, like, to hell with everything else. Yeah. I guess another example I can think of since I like sports is how lacrosse is still played and widely accepted as a sport. As we know, that was a game that was discovered when colonials came to North America. They saw the game being played by indigenous tribes not knowing what it was really i didn't know that oh yeah that's cool yeah big new york now i want to watch lacrosse more well i only know it because there's a sweet story about there was a fort in the wilderness and there was an indian tribe that was trying to get into the fort to kill all the white people and while they were waiting for the white people to open the gates they started playing this game And it's a war game where they play with the skulls of their fallen enemies. And that was the ball that they used. And that's how they played lacrosse. And it was a pretty pretty violent game. And they saw the game being played for about three days. And they went out to see what was happening because they just assumed it was like, you know, a celebration or, (laughs) or a festival or something like that or a feasting time. And they went out to um, see what was going on, and they opened the gates, and they stormed the, the, the stormed the fortress and killed a bunch of people, and it was awesome. That's so, fucking awesome. So that's when they realized it was a war game. It's not a fun game. It's a a game to show that you're not afraid to take a beating, because that's how they play lacrosse. Yeah. So that's cool. I actually uh, don't know the actual name of the sport. Lacrosse? Well, that's oh, what we the, call the it, but name? that's exactly what yeah. we're talking about. Like, yeah. I, like that. I, don't, I don't know the original name for it and i will look that up so yeah i think you kind of circled around to my point there's this very not good history attached to indigenous farming practices and you bring up a really good point about the fact that like so what do we do now and that seems to be the really difficult question you know we see different things like the land back movement reparations things like that about like how do we make amends for these things and like ignoring the whole right wing side of that conversation there there's a multitude of different opinions on 
the solutions because access to financial capital isn't sufficient in a lot of ways. And then things like land back, the question of whose land, like me personally, my land, I'm not going to give up my house and my property. And that like, I understand that position. And that's why this is so complicated. So when it comes to things like uh, giving indigenous authority to these conversations and elevating those voices, we had just talked about that the faces that we know in permaculture are all white dudes. And that that's really fucked up that you've taken people's culture and now you're traveling the world, primarily to third world countries and advocating for indigenous farming systems, sometimes that you don't really have any qualifications for because what might work in one place won't work in another. And not only are you repackaging indigenous knowledge, but you're also repacking indigenous knowledge to people in a different place that that indigenous knowledge might be slightly different and not just erasing it, but con- conflating it with what you're bringing in as knowledge. And that's almost in some ways worse, I think. Okay. So do, that, do you yeah, agree? I, I don't know. I, I think it's kind of really fucked up. Like imagine if like as me as an Italian, if like a New Jersey Italian went to my kids and said, this is Italian culture. And I would have been like, no, it fucking isn't. Their understanding of what Italian food is not Italian food. And that would like, and obviously Italian problems are a lot different than what we're talking about. But I, I just want to use like a metaphor that I think. I, yeah. Between, between you and I, that does make sense. I don't know <laughs> if it will to the people listening, but um, sorry. What I was going to say was one of the passages that we read brought up, context and how important that is to understand the knowledge that you're bringing in and its context and where you are with your knowledge base and how you apply that information. It's a mess is the short term of it. Right. So this is the first episode of a new mini series that we're at least for now calling the parole models. We didn't say that at the beginning. This is our pro models mini series. I think I said this is the new first episode of a new series but I didn't explain anything about it because I got very excited about talking about this because we get a lot of like a lot of messages regarding permaculture. So I just felt like it made a lot of sense to do this and kind of put our position there. But this is a new mini series that we're doing. It's going to be a little bit different than what we've been doing. You, you got to say the name of the mini series. I did say it one more time. Every time uh, you say pro mini models, pro models, mini series, you got to say pro models, mini series. Pro models. Mini series. Pro. Models. Mini series. Series. Pro. Mo- <laughs> All right. Next. The This project, this new mini series that we're working on, is going to be uh, looking at indigenous farming practices across the globe with the goal of looking pretty much as a diverse mix of uh, indigenous farming practices and my personal hope in this project is that we're going to be able to start looking at what's happening uh, across the globe and what had existed before capitalism as pretty much the common thread, colonialism or capitalism, which colonialism is a form of capitalism, essentially. It was the pillaging of lands for resources for people that were not actually doing the pillaging. You know, the people that are out you know, taking over indigenous lands were generally not the ones profiting from it. They usually stayed at home. So there's this common thread of what's destroyed these systems, and I want to take a look at what that means to start thinking about, as somebody that would, I guess, be classified as white, what it means to de-white myself, 
What's the word I'm looking for? Not necessarily D white. Yeah, just say unlearn. I guess uh, not unlearn. Um, Reindigenize, maybe. Um, decenter whiteness on uh, my my culture. I guess, I guess we could take. I guess we could take race out of it for a moment and say you can take a look. I guess the idea of permaculture is trying to take a look at where you are localizing permaculture. and learning how to like l- learning how to localize yourself and how you know your way of life is with your environment yeah um because but instead of saying localize we can use the word native and that's in, yeah indigenize yeah indigenize yeah sure. so like and this is something i think that the left has really grappled with and um not liz warren of course she's got to figure it out she's perfect <laughs> If you don't know, Elliot is trying to not die right now. It's funny. Yeah, I think, like I was saying, a lot of people that are on the left that even acknowledge this problem of um, permaculture are really struggling with a way to reconcile their concerns about colonization and um, maintaining uh, proper respect to indigenous peoples, uh, where we're moving, all of us are colonists in some capacity, um, we're existing on land that was stolen from other people and their history was erased. And not only was their history erased, but what little that survived is becoming commodified by people that are not them to make money, which is super fucked. So how do I live, for example, on Wampanoag land and not steal their culture, but also respect it and uh, do those things in a way that is also in line with my my own sense of place, I guess is the best way to put it. Like my own sense of this is where I live. I know it's not my, this land was stolen, but it's also the only place I've ever known. It's kind of like the issue with Israel and Palestine is you have generations now that have existed there. And how do you tell them the place that you were born and lived your whole life is not your own home? So where does the argument of like, you know, you can't punish people for the sins of their father come into play yeah it, like and you know what i mean like yeah you, you can't you can't decide where you're born if you could that would be actually pretty cool yeah and surface of the sun for me man that'd be fucking <laughs> so cool like an yeet, instant the ulti eat i would my, when, when, maybe like by the sun my mom could like shoot me at the sun and then go back to wherever <laughs> she was safely but i'd be like on the way to the sun you know i don't want anything bad to happen to my mom's but <laughs> Me born on the surface of the sun, dude. I'd be so black. I'd be blacker than I was now, dude. Birth to a crisp. <laughs> yeah. So like, it, it, there's a lot of very complicated questions, and without erasing the agency of any of the people involved, uh, really requires, I think, a deep dive into identifying not just ourselves, as in me and you, but how we can collectively make amends on these conversations of indigenous knowledge and again erasing for a lot of people their whiteness by looking back to their indigenous roots which is not an easy thing to do for a lot of reasons and again that brings back this question of well i don't live there or my my roots are uh, you know a mess because i'm a mutt or whatever and that that those roots really shouldn't be the only things that define you no i don't think you need to erase any part of yourself to apologize for anything but i think it's important to acknowledge all sides of history and not just take the good pieces from it like that's the whole point of it being important information is you have to take all of it into context and that's what i was kind of trying to say earlier was if 
people would apply the correct context to the information that they're getting, they'll get more out of it. And for this context, big context of this conversation, big picture, you have to go back pretty far because we're thinking ecologically. So yeah, and I, like I said, I think a lot of people just want to be good stewards of the land. Um, and a lot of people are whether consciously or subconsciously uh, recognizing the the failures of capitalism and the fact that nature has become a commodity and only then it becomes valued and in doing so it usually means destructing destroying that nature which reminds um, me i have to watch the movie mother again it's been a while since i've seen it kayana scotsy get high and watch that have you seen that no. oh my god dude that's literally we were talking about how uh, extended day in high school before we started recording and the earth science teacher used to have it on the those uh, are detentions for the, bad kids for those yeah, who don't know the um what are they called the laser discs they look like cds but they're like a foot wide if you don't know what a laser disc yeah, is if you're think of a 12 inch record but yeah, it's a cd but it's a cd it looks awesome and it plays sweet ass dvds the clarity was actually pretty good yeah like it before was, blu-ray yeah it was, it was pretty, pretty much good. blu-ray quality except nobody would buy them because they were super expensive unless it's like, the, like the betamax of dvds yeah Unless you're like a huge stoner teacher and you're at extended day every day, then you buy them for the troublemakers. And we all watch Koyana Skatsi, uh, which actually is very similar. It's about, I think it's Iroquois phrase. That means life out of balance, if I'm correct. It's been a long time since I've watched it. But yeah, you got to watch that, dude. Sick. Yeah. I'll smoke a bunch of weed and watch it. I can't <sighs> pronounce any of that, but it sounds awesome. It, it's amazing. So, yeah, it, it, we we want to be good stewards of our land and balance this understanding of what who we are with both our cultural history, our personal goals and interests and history and values, as well as recognizing the indigenous peoples that had managed that land. And like we, you know, you can talk about the idea of like, conquerization has always happened cultures have always been pushed aside for new cultures but there there's a very big difference between cultures fighting and there being war and the erasure of history and not only just the erasure of history but the erasure of history and the erasure of human relationships with their landscape uh, you know when the colonists showed up they there was that history that had existed with the landscape was forever gone and now we're trying to replace that in a lot of ways. And that happened across the globe in different time periods, roughly within about a, for the most part, a 500 year window where that was erased in some capacity. Our, uh, what I want to call our indigenous non, I, I say monocrop, but there are actually a lot of examples of uh, monocrop farming and in indigenous practices. It's just not how we do things. And th that's, well, we're going to cover that in an episode, I promise. But this understanding of how our relationship with the landscape, and again, we've talked about this time and time again, centering our economy on the ecology instead of the ecology being something worth consuming. When that bifurcation happens, when that's been lost, that's when systems start to fall apart. And that's kind of where we can see the line being drawn in a lot of these systems. And what... The goal is at least that we're going to talk about these and hopefully we see this common thread that makes all of this kind of make sense and maybe give us some kind of answer of what now? What do we do? How do we deal with this situation? Yes? No? I don't know. I, 
I don't know my context in all of this. As because how do you? I'm I'm thinking about it like personally. How do you choose your history and like where you come from, and what do you have to like? Are you saying you have to change how you apply the information that you were, I guess, dealt with? Like, I don't wh- know. Where, where is your agent? Where's your agency in this situation? And I think that's part of why this conversation needs to be had is because nobody knows. Generally, in my experiences, in these types of conversations, my job as a white guy is to shut up and listen to what people that have been marginalized say. But we're kind of flipping that model on its head a little bit in the sense that we're searching for our own indigenous voices, as well as how do we reconcile that with these conversations with um, the indigenous people that have been pushed out of the landscape and in some cases no longer have any uh, attachment to their indigenous farming practices because of white people. And even though my people, you know, my dad came here in the seventies, like I, I had nothing to do with that. They've been in Italy for generations. And before that they were in Syria and Libya, like they have nothing to do with what's happened in the United States. It's, it's a complicated conversation. And I think a lot of times, at least today, people are uncomfortable with having it. And there's a lot of tiptoeing around it in terms of like, you know, there's a lot of support for land back. I'm going to pick on that for a little bit. And like a lot of people be like, we need to, you know, there needs to be land back. There needs to be reparations and these types of things. Reparations is an easy sell because it's, in, in most cases, people understand as a cash, like the government is going to give you cash. Right. But that changes when you talk about land back, like whose land? My land. And then this idea of like re-indigenizing and recognizing indigenous places within the landscape that they've been pushed off of is it, it becomes very personal and that people get concerned about what that actually looks like. I feel like that's a very eye for an eye approach. And um, I understand the sentiment behind it, but I don't think that's a solution to the problem. I think uh, it's a two, my, my perspective of it, and the way I would approach it is it's a two-part or a two-step uh, process and acknowledging the history and uh, a sense of inclusion like moving forward so that there isn't a clear division between communities. It's now that, you know, you, you can't, erase what happened but now you can say look we're all indigenous now you know and moving forward moving forward let's include everybody yeah and make better decisions for ourselves yeah and i would say like that i feel like that's that's an oversimplification but that's just my point Um, of view you know i think in a lot of cases um we should be handing off the the language of those conversations and the decisions of those conversations to the people that have been most marginalized whether they're indigenous or, in your case, like African-American, different boats but similar trajectories in terms of treatment and what is owed to the people who've uh, had their cultures destroyed in so many ways. Right, but you can say what's owed, but also who like who ran up the bill. You know what I mean? Like, How can you... I don't know. I don't understand uh, how somebody yeah. can pay for and that's, something that wasn't done. So yeah, and in, that's like, instead of having a, I don't know, I'm just saying, instead of having to answer for that, just, you know, maybe acknowledge and change behavior because that's how you're going to actually fix the issue. That's how you fix the issue with most people. Yeah. And you like, change their behavior. And 
we're talking about this idea of like who owes the bill. And it's completely valid. Like I just said, like my family wasn't here. Why should I have to answer for the crimes right. of other people? And I, I get that point. However, it, that, that reminds, it's like very means testy. Like it reminds me of like Pete Buttigieg talking about like healthcare for all, but not really. Are you in this income bracket? Well, we have to do all this assessment and it ends up watering down the actual conversation and it drives support away from it. I, I, and I like, I, to be completely honest, I don't know a whole lot about the land back movement in terms of what that particularly means. My understanding of it is that it's not about like taking Rhode Island and being like, we're going to hand the whole state over to indigenous people, but identifying areas that are of cultural and uh, value and are accessible enough that they could be and whatever it costs to buy out the people that might be on that land would be a part of that conversation. And obviously, I think there's no simple solution. We're talking about 337 million Americans, and I have no idea how many Native Americans still exist. I'm guessing around 2 million. Everyone's understanding of what that means is going to be different, and finding a middle ground for everyone is going to be hard. I just feel like that's a very transactional approach. It feels very tit-for-tat. And and I think that's that's just a, a component of the conversation, that it's a multifaceted cultural component actual physical land back component and you know some kind of restitution in terms of not just uh, culturally acknowledging it but giving uh, lifting up those voices so that they can participate in that conversation and lead that conversation because it's their right to decide how, what the solution to what they've been harmed from is i think it's still everybody's right because again we're trying to say now everybody's is, is indigenous and that's what i was trying to say about inclusion their voices should be heard and they should be included in the conversation for sure but so should everybody else because you can't change where you're born or where you live okay i mean i, I don't disagree uh, like, i like i don't want to make it seem like i do disagree with that um i just it's a complicated conversation. That's why we're having it. I just uh, want to include everybody, goddammit. Yeah. Like, it, it, it's not easy, but there are too many people that I think write off the conversation about the fact that this is colonized language. This is colonized culture. Even if it is something that does well for the planet, it's still something that has been stolen from other people, and there needs to be some accountability for that. For some reason, the liberal to leftist white people try to use the fact that it's something that's supposedly good for the environment as an excuse not to have to answer to those consequences. You know, that, so the whole point of this new mini series is this conversation, pretty much. So if this is interesting to you, you're going to really like what we're doing because we're going to be looking at a bunch of different areas and kind of continuing this conversation around what what it means to create or to recognize and I'm not even sure what I'm trying to say, like we're, that we'll be talking about from both uh, a, an older perspective of more ancient farming practices to what's going on in terms of like Detroit and uh, Havana and um, these projects that have sprung up over the last 30, 40 years that are creating new sense of indigenous farming of some capacity and creating new culture in a place where it had been erased and kind of that role in this conversation of how do you create culture and what are the conditions that create those cultures uh, and how that integrates into this bigger conversation about what is indigenous 
and how that uh, impacts what our farming practices are and uh, recentering our world around the ecology. So we're trying to come up with a new old school. Yeah. And that, uh, if you're familiar with like a lot of post-colonial theory. I don't know what the hell that is, but <laughs> go on. Okay. So a lot of post-colonial theory, like uh, Leslie Marmon Silco wrote a book called Ceremony. The general, the idea is that this indigenous person who is half white is trying to make amends with what it means to be who she, she is, he is. I can't, I haven't read it in like 15 years. But the conclusion is that erasing the white part of their identity erases their identity. And that in, for their culture to survive, it requires evolving. Evolution is life. And, you know, the, again, we've been having this conversation about what it means to be human, essentially. Like, how do we center our eco economy on our ecology and what makes us human in terms of being in part of being a part of nature? And part of that is that we evolve just as much as our landscape evolves. And what are, how do we relate with that? The moment we stop evolving and being a component of that natural system is when we die. And that's kind of what's happened. We've disconnected ourselves from nature. And by all purposes, I would define what we're doing now as killing ourselves as a species. Yeah, dude, people are getting the cell phone pinky thumb fucking curve thing all <laughs> weird on their hand and shit. Yeah, I mean, just like in terms of like the fucking planet is we're killing the planet and we're killing ourselves with the way we eat. Like, you know, we, we've disconnected, we've become static and we're dying. Uh, we're no longer connected with the natural system around us. It's not an overnight thing, but it's happening. I bet this wasn't really the episode you expected it to be. A lot of people, I think, are going to see permaculture and expect something that was not this. I think from my perspective, at least, this was one of the hardest for us to kind of put together notes on and to really articulate a position on, which you probably figured out from listening to it. But one that I, I feel is really necessary for us to have, despite it not having much value in terms of actual agricultural practice. I mean, what do you think? Do you think this was worth doing? Uh, people aren't going to be able to use it to like start a garden or anything, but I think it gets our point of view across but we we're still going to go over some of the information that we referenced in here i think we're just trying to acknowledge so it's an important I guess, conversation I guess, to have yeah it's yeah. an important conversation to have because we're trying to acknowledge more of the history of where the information came from and i think again i'm going to use the word context but to contextualize it so that we can use it moving forward without feeling guilty like you do and without um feeling sorry for being white yeah, I mean, exactly, but you don't have to be. Like, how, how I don't did, have how to did be you, white? No, how did you have oh. any agency in that? Like, you don't get yeah. to choose. I can't fault somebody for something they didn't, you know, have any control over. Sure. I, that's, that's, that's a hard thing that I have to... Yeah, and I, I think, you know, this will be really... I, I'm excited for the series. It's a lot different than what we've done. And we, we've been drafting up a lot of notes on it. And I think, again, if you enjoyed this conversation... We're going to be doing a lot more of this. I hope you found this episode to be helpful. If not helpful, at least a little bit interesting uh, and kind of get those gears working a little bit. If the, if you're just learning about permaculture, this is, I think, a really good first step because it helps frame those conversations as you do read a lot of what's out there. Context, goddammit. Yeah, context, absolutely. So if you did like this episode, 
please, if you use iTunes, go over there and give us a review. Those reviews help us rank higher, helps drive new traffic to the podcast, and ultimately allows us to continue to grow and get new guests on the podcast. We have some really awesome stuff coming up. We can't officially announce some of the folks we've got, but I'm super excited. Get on Patreon if you want to hear us talk more. We've got a ton of new content coming. Yeah, Patreon's pretty fun. Yeah. We have fun with those. We have fun with these two. I, I think that's it. Thank you guys for listening. And uh, as always, this is Andy. And this is Elliot on the Poor Pearls Almanac. 